When you were growing up, did you ever do that thing where you planned out all the years that certain milestones in your life would happen? Did you ever do that? You know, when you're a kid and you're like, okay, at this point, this thing's going to happen. And, uh, and then when I get to that age, that thing's going to happen. Anyone else ever do that? Yeah. I remember as a kid, I, I decided when I was going to get married. I decided I was going to get married when I was 29. I'm not exactly sure why 29 was the age, but I thought, I, you know, I'm not the type of person who's like, oh, I have to be married, I have to be married. I can wait. I'm happy to give it a good amount of time, uh, kind of enjoy my 20s, not be too, you know, tied down to anything and, and be able to kind of go on all these adventures and all that. So I, I'm happy to wait till I'm 29. I know that's a lot later than most people would want to wait, but, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that. 29 is late enough and, and, you know, I can enjoy that. Well... If any of you are observant in the room, you will notice that there is no wedding ring on my left hand, or my right hand, in case you wondered if there was one on that one too. I'm now 32 years old, and that uh, dream I had as a child of being married when I'm 29 hasn't come to pass. It hasn't happened. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see what people's thoughts are by the end of the sermon. <laughs> I've spent 31 of the 32 years of my life single. Uh, I'm currently dating. I'm dating Catherine, who many of you will know. And uh, Catherine's great. And uh, all of these things that are happening in this introduction are great fuel for the rest of the sermon. Um, and uh, yeah, I've, 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 like I said, I've been in, in I'm 32, I've been in church my whole life. And in my 32 years of uh, being in church, I would say I've maybe heard one sermon on singleness the whole time I've ever been in church. This isn't something we talk about. It's something we like to avoid for some reasons as, uh, as Christians and church leaders. It's not something we address very, diff uh, very often. But at 6 o'clock church, we want to be different. We're a family. We're a church family. And so this is something that we want to address head on. Whether you're single or married, you will have been singled at some point, single at some point, or you will know single people. And so this is a really, really important topic for us to cover. And all of us will have different experiences of relationships and singleness. Some of us here tonight are single and loving it. Some of us are single and hating it. Some of us are married and loving it. Some of us are married and not loving it. <laughs> and we all have different experiences. Some of us are single because we're, to be honest, not really wanting to get into a relationship. Some of us will have never dated our whole lives. Others will have been in many relationships, maybe going from one relationship to the next. Others will be single purely because it hasn't worked out as they dreamed. Some will be divorced. Perhaps others widowed. People here who are dealing with regret. Moments of your life you look back on and then you just kind of replay over and over. What if I'd done that differently in the relationship? What if I'd never said that? Or what if I'd never made that phone call? And all of us have questions. Many of us will be wrestling with questions. Some will be about um, sex and the place of that. Now I'm a Christian or maybe sexuality. All of us trying to work out these massive, massive things amongst the craziness of the world we live in. And all of us will have opinions and beliefs tonight. Maybe when you heard I was speaking on singleness, maybe something came through your head based on an experience. 
Others, when I, I, I said that I've been single most of my life and I'm not married as I hope, some emotions might have been conjured within you. All of us will have had experiences and voices that we've heard from other people that will shape our own view of singleness, sex, relationships, and marriage. And it's important that we're aware of the voices that are shaping us and be uh, more and more aware of what they're saying to us because a lot of what we believe on these things isn't through the conscious voices that we've been listening to, but the subconscious messages that are sent, sent at us every day, both from culture and also as Christians here in church as well. So first of all, what's culture saying to us? What's the message of our society? Have you noticed how the culture around us is screaming, you must be in a relationship. You must be in a relationship. You need to be having sex and experiencing romance if you're going to be happy. Have you noticed that? You don't have to look very far to see it, to hear it. We're obsessed with relationships. What was the most popular TV show this summer, just like last summer? Love Island. Where apparently the idea is to find love whilst walking around in your swimming costume and doing all sorts of interesting acts. Because that's how you find love. Every sort of angle. Books. What was one of the highest selling books of the last decade? Fifty Shades of Grey. And this isn't just being read by, you know, teenage boys who are a little bit curious. Who is the biggest audience for Fifty Shades of Grey? Middle-aged women. This is all around us. <laughs> oh, I could make some jokes, Ellie. I'm going to hold back on that one. <laughs> this isn't something new. If you were a child in the 90s like myself, you'd have seen it in the most popular TV show that has had more impact on this planet than any other TV show. There's nothing else like it. What show would that be? Friends. Made a massive comeback on Netflix in recent months. And what was one of the most common conversations when you watch Friends? They'd ask one another, how long has it been since you last had sex? I remember distinctly watching one episode where they ask, have that conversation and someone says, it's been three months. And they're like, three months? No, no wonder you're going crazy. Three months without sex, man, you must be going nuts. It's everywhere. It's shaping how we view ourselves, our relationships, sex, marriage, and singleness. And the message of culture is you need to be in a relationship. If you're going to be safe, if you're going to be satisfied, if you're going to be happy, singleness is not for you. So that's culture. What about church? Well, my experience of church is that we have a really high value on marriage. I've been in lots of different church circles and lots of different kind of Christian environments. And I would say everywhere I've been a part of, there's a really, really high view of marriage. Really, really high view of marriage. And I think a big, a big reason for that is ever since the 1960s, if you've ever studied it, the sexual revolution, there was this real uh, kind of change in society where everything was flipped on its head and all the norms no longer were the norm. And marriage was no longer seen as something essential or something to be desired or valued. And in our desire to see marriage, an institution that is valued and maintained, we've spoken a, a lot about it. And that's a good thing. We do things like marriage courses. Like in this church, we run a course for married people to try and strengthen marriages. We do sermons on marriages. And there's tons of Christian books 
on marriage. And that's great. It's really, really important. But I think it's also important that we're aware of some of the shadow side to all of that. See, whilst we can look at culture and say, man, they're obsessed with relationships. Look at them. All they can do is just talk about how you need to be in a relationship. I think as Christians, we need to do the awkward thing of looking in the mirror and look in our churches. Because I think the truth is, whether we're honest enough to admit it or not, is that we've ended up doing the same thing as culture. We say you need to be in a relationship. Just make sure you're married. I mean, just make sure you've got a ring on your finger. But you need to be in a relationship. And in a desire to defend and commend marriage, what we've done is we've idolized it. We've made an idol of marriage. And the problem of when you make an idol of anything is what you idolize, you demonize. What do I mean by that? When you make an idol of something, what you're saying is, this thing is God in my life. And you might say, what do you mean? I'm not bowing down to the idol of, of marriage in my, my, my lounge or something like that. No, what, what it means to make an idol of something is you're saying, if I have this, then I will have peace. Then I will have satisfaction. Then I'll have joy. This is the thing that will make me feel safe. But the problem when you do that is, when you make an idol of something, eventually what you find out is it doesn't live up to the billing. It doesn't satisfy. See, there's only one perfect being, and it won't be your spouse. It won't be the person you're in a relationship with. See, if they're the one who's meant to bring you that joy and that peace and that intimacy, you're going to be on shaky ground because they're not perfect. They're not consistent. There's only one who is. There's only one who can bring you true satisfaction. There's only one that can bring you that perfect peace, that lasting joy. And it's not a girlfriend or boyfriend, a husband or wife. It's only Jesus and him alone. He is the only one who can satisfy. And if you're putting all your hope in marriage, making that an idol, eventually you'll demonize that because it won't live up to its billing, to your hopes. And eventually you'll begin to resent the thing that was meant to bring you all the answers. We need to be honest. Marriage has become an idol in many of our churches and church circles. So if culture idolizes relationships, and church can too, what does God, what does the one who created sex and marriage and human intimacy, what does he have to say about the issue? Well, let me ask you this. And I want you to be honest in your own heart. Don't just say what you think you're supposed to say. Which does God want most for us? Is it his will, is it his best for us, that we were all single or married? Which is more valuable? Which is the gift from God? Both. It's both. Both singleness and marriage are gifts. They're both beautiful. They're both wonderful. And for the same reason. Why? Because they both show the gospel. 
They both present the good news of Jesus Christ. Sam Albury, I love this quote. He says it so well. He, he says this. Marriage is a picture of the shape of the gospel. And singleness is a picture of the sufficiency of the gospel. So what does that mean? Let's break it down. First of all, marriage is a picture of the shape of the gospel. Marriage reflects Christ, Jesus, and his love for the church. In Ephesians 5.25, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Marriage is a picture of the shape of the gospel. What the gospel, the good news of Jesus looks like. At its best, at its, its root, at its healthiest, it's meant to be a picture of the sacrificial love and commitment that Jesus has for you and for I, for us, his church. Marriage is a picture of that. And singleness is a picture of the sufficiency of the gospel. Saying that it's sufficient. What does that mean? Well, as we've seen, the world is screaming, you have to be married. You have, or at least you have to be in a relationship. Maybe marriage is a bit outdated, but still, you need to be in a relationship. Yet in the context of that blaring message, that all-consuming message, you, your life as a content, joyful, unmarried Christian, your life shouts the powerful message, that Christ is enough. Christ is enough. He's enough. You can know satisfaction. You can know fulfillment. You can know contentment. You can know joy. Not from having all the world says that you need to have to be happy and have all those things. But in Jesus and in the family he gives you. Christ is enough. What a message to the outside world. What a message to your colleagues. What a message to your family. What a message to your neighbors. Last year, I, uh, I met up with a, a guy who was exploring faith. And if you've ever been in one of these conversations over weeks and months where you're trying to uh, convince someone that God is real and he's worth living for, you'll know that you, kind of, you, you try different things. As Toby said, there's different arguments that you can kind of give to say, look, this is why God is real and this is why you should live for him. He's worth it. But often, even with all the kind of fanciest words and best arguments or whatever, the video you sent them from YouTube of that guy you think describes it perfectly, often it just doesn't seem to, to convince someone. And I've been having one of these conversations with someone for a while and trying to convince them that God was real and worth giving your life to. And he wasn't really having it. And it kind of got to that sticking point where he's like, look, at the end of the day, from what you're telling me, if God was real, I would have to make massive changes to my life. And I just don't think that's realistic. So he spoke a bit more. And then, as always, the conversation of sex came up. And we talked about it and his lifestyle and what the Bible talks about, about marriage and sex. And he said to me, he said, so John, you're telling me that if I became a Christian... I would have to stop having sex until I was to get married, which may or may not even happen. And I said to him, yeah. I was like, that's how I've lived my whole life. And that's how I'll live for the rest of my life, I hope, by God's grace. Until I get married, or if that never happens, till the day I die. 
and he could not believe it. He thought it was the type of thing that you hear from like some American televangelist, but no Christians actually lived that way, did they? And the fact that I was willing to lay down this thing that the world, that our cultures values as the highest. He's saying, if you're willing to lay down even that, then maybe God is real. That was the thing that stood out to him. And you, as a single Christian, living a life that honors God, you can have that same message, that same powerful message to the people who are watching, who are looking at your lifestyle. So what do we do with all this? What does God's view of marriage and God's view of singleness and God's view of sex lead us to do? Well, it leads us to do two different things. Firstly, it leads us to embrace the season you're in. Embrace the season you're in. So many singles are waiting for life to start, waiting for life to begin, just desperate. When that happens, when I, uh, when I finally get married, then I'll be satisfied. And there's this element of just living in limbo. In my own life, I've wasted too many hours focusing on what I don't have rather than what I do. You can find yourself focusing all your energy and emotion and your focus on what may or may not be around the corner rather than holding on tight to the gifts that God has given you for today. And we're all aware of the uh, blessings of marriage. But how often do we talk about the blessings of singleness? Because the Bible does. And perhaps if we as Christians talked a bit more about it like the Bible does, we might not idolize marriage quite as much. Here's what the Apostle Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 7. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious. He's concerned with the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about, focused on worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. That's rightly so. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about, concerned with the things of the Lord. How to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things. How to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit. Not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to Christ. What Paul's saying, what the Bible is saying, is that a spouse, a husband, a wife, and a family rightly take up your time and attention. That's important. If they don't, there's a problem. That's a right and good thing. But what Paul is also saying is, if you're unmarried, if you're single, then you have the unique opportunity to spend more of your time and energy and focus on the things of God. You can devote yourself more fully to the things of him. And that is a wonderful gift. It really is. Mike Pilavachi, some of you will have heard of him. He started something called Soul Survivor. He's a church called Soul Survivor in Watford. This is a guy who has impacted countless lives across the globe. And I'll never forget the time I saw him speak on singleness. He's a single guy himself. 
And he said that he wouldn't have been able to do half the things he's been able to do had he been married. Because his time and his attention would have been divided. And he said, in fact, it would have been sinful for him to have done the things he's done had he been married and had kids. Because he would have had to have neglected his family. Now remember, this isn't always easy. I'm not trying to say that singleness is always a walk in the park. It's often difficult and sometimes really painful. There'll be times where you'll see little kids running around and thinking, oh man, how amazing would it have been to have one of them? Or I wonder if I'll ever have my own kids. Even a couple of days ago, someone here in the church who I'm friends with had a kid and seeing the picture, I'm like, oh man, it'd be so cool to have my own kids. There'll be times where you'll... Um, Hear about couples nights that are happening and you're thinking, I wish I could have been invited to that. There'll be times where you'll, let's be honest, you'll be feeling aroused and you'll be thinking, I wish I could just have sex. There'll be times where um, you'll see pictures of someone, maybe you'll be scrolling through your Facebook or whatever, your Insta, and you'll, you'll see the picture of that person who you really liked and they rejected you and you're thinking, what, what, was, what was wrong with me? There'll be times where you're hanging out in groups and everyone is just talking about weddings and all they ever do is talk about weddings or their kids or the, the school that their children, is trying to, the children are trying to get into. Or then they'll start making the comments about, oh, it was so much easier when I was single. Single people have it so easy. And you're sat there thinking, man, I'm so jealous of you, but apparently I have this easy life. And all of those things can hurt. They hurt a lot. But God doesn't undervalue singleness. Singleness is a gift. If you're ever tempted to think that you're second rate as a single, do not let that thought be in your head for more than a split second because it is rubbish. It is absolute rubbish. And if you're ever tempted to believe that lie, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Jesus, who lived as a single man in a culture and a religious context that hated singleness even more than our own culture. In Jesus' time, the religious leaders were teaching this, and this is a quote. Any man who has no wife is no proper man. They also taught the man who is not married at 20 is living in sin. That's the messages they were hearing on Saturdays and Sundays and in their small groups. And in that context, Jesus came as a single man who never married in all 33 years of his life. And ever since then, he's been using singles in powerful ways to impact their neighborhoods and nations. He chose the Apostle Paul, the great missionary, to spread the church. And he can use you in your singleness too. So if you're single, don't live in limbo. Embrace the season you're in. And you know, this is true for all of us. It's not just to do with singleness. You might be someone who's married and you're thinking, you know what? Life will start when we have kids. When we just have kids, then life will begin. And then you have the kids, you're like, whew, life will start when the kids go to school. Oh man, then we can start enjoying ourselves a bit more and remembering what sleep was again and when they just go to school. And then it's, well, 
We can't really fit him in the house. So life will start when we get the extension and then we'll start inviting people from church around. I know it's been five or six years, but as soon as we get those bifold doors and can open up the patio a bit, then we can invite people in because life will have really started and our house will be okay. And then it's, oh, the kids, when they get off to uni or leave home, like then it'll be so much easier. All those dreams you've had, then life will start. And then you're like, our oh, work is getting tough and life can truly begin when I retire. Then life will begin. And we might laugh at that, but how many of us are living in limbo saying, this will happen when that happens? I'll start living fully for God and embracing God's family and giving everything for him. But just when that thing happens, embrace the season you're in. Embrace the season you're in. Secondly, Embrace the family you're in. Now, if you're taking notes, here's something to write down. We don't need sex. We don't need marriage. I'm going to say it again. We do not need sex. And we do not need marriage. I'm 32. I've never had either. And I'll say this As far as I can tell, my head hasn't exploded. I haven't kind of suffocated. I haven't kind of got nervous jitters as a result of it. You don't need sex or marriage. Jesus never had either. The most full, most satisfied, most fulfilled human being that's ever walked the face of the planet never had sex, never got married. We don't need sex or marriage. What we need is intimacy. What we need is intimacy. And you know that because it's why you can be married and still be lonely. Because marriage does not, by default, equal intimacy. It's why some of my friends who are the most sexually active are some of the most desperately lonely. Because sex does not equal intimacy. What we need, what we need at our deepest is to know and be known. To know someone else at their deepest heart level and for someone else to know us with our warts and all at our deepest level. We want to be known and be known. That's what life-giving, meaningful relationships look like. It's the heartbeat of humanity. Look right back at the start with Adam. God creates Adam. And he said everything is good. He has all this amazing creation. But what's the first thing he said is not good? It is not good for man to be alone. To be alone. And I've always just found that to be a crazy, crazy story because think about it. Adam is walking with God in the garden. It literally said they walk together. A level of closeness with God that we can only dream of this side of heaven. Yet despite having this incredible relationship with God, Adam was still alone. God knew that it wasn't good for him to be alone. And so he gave him Eve. He gave him a wife, but also a friend, a helper, someone who he could create literally more community with through children. He gave him family, friends. Now, I think in churches, we've always interpreted the story of Adam and Eve as just being like, look, Adam, lonely, Eve equals wife equals loneliness sorted. And we focused on, that's the the, the argument, that we all need to be married. 
But it goes so much deeper than just Adam and Eve, husband and wife. It's community, it's friendship, brothers and sisters, aunties and uncles, friends and neighbors, community. It's throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible. And again, I want to say this clear. Husbands and wives were never meant to be the sole solution to loneliness. If you're thinking that your spouse is going to survive all your relational needs, you're going to be deeply disappointed. We need community, and that's more than one person. It's throughout the scriptures. We see words and phrases and stories that say this over and over again. The Bible constantly turns to any page is talking about the family of God, the people of God, the body of Christ, all this corporate knowledge, uh, corporate understanding. You look at Jesus' life. You think he's the type of person who's got a lot of things to do, so he should probably kind of hide off in some office away from people. Yet he devoted himself to friends. Not just, you know, kind of this close nuclear family, but no, he devoted himself to the disciples and wider than that too. It's all throughout the scriptures. And let's get really practical. To build community, we have to be intentional. We have to be intentional. If we're going to go beyond the, the, the kind of Sunday, look, if to you when I say community, you're like, well, yeah, I come to church like once or twice or even three times, sometimes a month. You've completely missed what the Bible, what the message of God is all about. Community is far more than 90 minutes on a weekend. It goes far deeper than that. Yes, church is so important. I'm so glad you came tonight. Make church a priority in your week. Come here every week. But if all Christian community is to you is just turning up, sitting next to someone, maybe during the break having a bit of awkward small talk or going on your phone if you don't feel like it, if that's what community to you is, you have missed what the Christian life is all about. Completely missed it. See, Christian community is based on friendship and we have to fight for friendship the problem with friendship is that as a society and let's be honest probably in the church too we viewed it as the waiting room for marriage so it's like when you're single make sure you have a lot of friends but when you got married get married it's kind of like you graduate from that no one would ever say that no of course no one would ever say that but it's what we live out it's why when you see two people uh, get into a relationship, and just how quickly people can start to abandon their friends, people who they've been really, really close to. It's why so many married couples have few, so few genuinely close friends. This is the norm. People often ask me, how have you managed to, as a 32-year-old who's only spent one year of your life in a relationship, how have you managed to kind of fight loneliness. It must have been horrible for you. And whilst there's been some hard moments, for the most part, I found it relatively easy. Why? Because I fought for friendship. I fought for this. I passionately invested in friends. You might not know this about me. If you're close to me, you will have seen it, but I'm always trying to organize pub trips or walks or holidays I reply to messages. I know that sounds just, it's probably the craziest thing you've heard tonight, but like, I don't just leave it on the two blue ticks on WhatsApp. Like, I reply to my friends. I let them know if I'm going to be there or not. If I say I'm going to be there, I actually show up. 
I've opened up my home to people. I've had, I can't remember how many times I've had people in my house. I've shared my heart with people, not just my home. I've told them my dreams and my disappointments. I've forgiven them when they've hurt me and I've asked for forgiveness when I've treated them badly. I've worked hard for it. And again, I want to be honest. It hasn't always been easy. In fact, even in recent weeks, there's been moments where I've just had the thought, it would be so much easier to just run away, to give up on friendship. Is it really worth the effort, the disappointment? There's been moments I've thought, I wish I just kept people at arm's length. But despite those days, I'm so, so grateful for my friends. I'm so, so pleased that I have invested countless hours and days and weeks and text messages and pounds and whatever it might be into friendship because it is so worth it. It's so worth it. It pays off. It takes effort. It takes energy. But it's so, so worth it. And can I encourage you, a conversation I regularly have at church, or thankfully not all that regularly, but people say to me is, they say, look, John, I... I'm struggling in, in church at the moment. I'm thinking I might go to another church because I'm not making any friends. I say, I'm sorry to hear that. That sucks. I'm really sorry. I say, how's it been when you've um, yeah, tried to make friends with the people on the serving team you're with? Like, you're on host team or what are you doing? They're like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not on any teams or anything like that. I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, well, what, what's it like when you've been trying to make friends with your small group? Like, how's that been? I say, uh... Well, yeah, I signed up to one, but I've, I've been, uh, I think, once this term. Um, okay. It's just not, yeah, it's just not really the right one for me. I, I don't know which one is. So I, I can't find one that works for me. Okay. Um, all right, well, serve in small group, whatever. Like, how have you found it when you've invited people out for coffee or invited around your house? Like, like, have you connected with people on that deeper level? And almost always the answer is the same thing. I've never really invited anyone. Or I tried once and then they flaked on me on the day and I thought, oh, I can't be bothered with that again. We have to fight for this. If you want intimacy, it's not going to come overnight. We have to fight for friendship. And it's not just about showing up. It's about showing your heart. If you want to have intimacy... You have to have authenticity. Intimacy is impossible without authenticity. So you might feel like you have a lot of friends but still feel lonely. Why is that? Because they're not friends with you. They're friends with a shallow projection of you. See, if every time you hang out it's just small talk and you're waiting for them to maybe go a bit deeper, but you're not going to initiate that, then you can never know intimacy. I feel like a helpful understanding of intimacy I've heard is into me see. Intimacy is I want you to see into my life. When I'm, at, when I'm hanging out with you, when I'm at small group, I'm not going to just hope that someone else starts sharing and being more real and vulnerable. I'm going to initiate that and I'm going to do it. I'm going to create that culture. Authenticity is central to intimacy. Open your home, open your heart and experience that true intimacy. All right, well, we're going to bring things to an end. But before we do, I'm going to ask you two questions. I'm going to ask you what your next steps are with two questions. The first question is this.
How can you embrace the season you're in? Wherever you are right now, single, married, divorced, dating, whatever your season is, widowed, how can you embrace the season you're in? Now, for some of us, it's pretty painful to even consider that because you're desperate to be out of this season. For some of you, this whole talk comes with huge amounts of shame and regret. You're thinking, you know what, the reason I'm in this season isn't because of uh, good, good things. It's because of mistakes I've made. It's because of things I've done. And I want to say this. If it's not gone to plan for you, God still has a plan. God hasn't written you off. He isn't saying, you know, because of your past, because of where you're at, I'm done. Now, he still has a plan for you. It doesn't matter what your past is. You, the, the scandal of the gospel is you can come to God tonight and say, God, I'm sorry for what's come before, but I lay it down in your feet and I want to give everything for you. And he's not going to wag his finger at you and say, I've got no more good things for you now. You wasted that back in the 90s. No, he's going to say, I've got plans for you. I want to bless you. I want to use you. And I can work all things, all things for good. And I just want to appeal to what I think is quite a large number of us in the room. It's yeah, those of us who are, um, are single and desperate to be married. How can you embrace the season you're in? Are you spending every moment thinking, how can I get out of this? What can I do next? Rather than taking hold of what God has for you today. Next, I want to ask, how can you embrace the family you're in? Are you getting involved? Are you getting honest? One thing I love about this church is just how much people love community. In many ways, this sermon is just preaching to the choir because I know so many of you are living this out. Even just this week, seeing people wrap around someone who needed support, people who, who hardly knew each other but saying, this person's in need and I'm going to do everything, even if it inconveniences myself, to show love to this person. We're living this stuff out. But I want to ask you, what's your next step? Maybe you've been, you signed up to a small group, but you kind of go as and when you feel like it. Commit. Be there. Be consistent. Or maybe you always go, but during the discussion times, you kind of sit there and whenever you're asked a question, you just share the Christian answer or what you think you're supposed to say rather than like, look, you know what, like, I really struggle with that passage in the Bible or I'm really struggling in my life right now or actually, I'm doing great and everyone in this group seems to be struggling. It feels weird me being so positive, but I'm, I'm loving life. Be open. Open up your heart. If you're doing all of that, are you meeting up with people during the week? Inviting them for a meal or going out for coffee? What's your next step in embracing the family you're in? Like I said, it takes time. You're not going to get it overnight. But it's so, so worth it when you embrace the family you're in. The Bible values singleness and it values marriage. It doesn't elevate one above the other. And as a church family, it's six o'clock church. Let's live as those free from the lies of our culture, free to embrace what God has for us today, whatever that may look like, whether that's singleness that lasts for a few months, few years, or to the rest of our days, rest of our lives until we see Jesus face to face, where there'll be no more marriage, there'll be no more disappointment, there'll be no more loneliness, 
there'll be no more shame. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're the one who gives good gifts. You promise in your word that you give good gifts to those who love you. I thank you, Lord, for the, the gift of marriage. Lord, we lift up every marriage represented in this room right now. Say, so would you bless them? Bless their unity. Be with them, Lord. Guide them. Lord, we thank you that you give the good gift of singleness. However long it lasts, Lord, we thank you that it's a good gift and can be used for your glory. And God, we ask that we would honor you with our lives, that we'd honor you with the season of life we're in. And God, I also pray that we would honor you with our bodies, that we would offer them as living sacrifices to you, Lord, that we wouldn't live as the world that says, Sex is just some physical act with no emotional or spiritual attachments. Lord, we live as those who are different, an upside-down kingdom. And God, for those of us who are short-circuiting your good plans for us, trying to find back doors and way around it, God, I pray that in your kindness, because you're good, you'd convict us of that. Lord, I pray for any of us who have in our desire to be in a relationship, have put that above following you. God, I pray that we'd have no gods but you. Lord, we repent of the idolatry. And so we want to live all for you, whatever the cost, because you're worth it. We love you, Lord. Amen.